0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant.
1: This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 29 recorded on August 7th, 2013. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with Dr. Peter Houghton, who is a co-host, but today he is actually serving as a guest speaker. Uh, Welcome, Pete. Thank you. And I'm also here online on Skype with Lionel Chow from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Lionel, thanks for being here.
2: Uh, no problem, Tim. Hi, Pete.
1: Hey. So um, we are discussing a paper that Dr. Houghton recently published that is really a, an amazing paper, I think, and uh, thought worthy of uh, focusing our whole episode on this. Just a few mechanics about the paper. It's uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. For those of you who are listening who aren't familiar with PNAS, it's a relatively prestigious journal in the scientific literature. Uh, it was just published in July 16th of 2013. I counted five figures, six supplemental figures, and for those of you who like Western blots, there are 26 panels of sets of Western blots. So each each panel has a minimum of probably eight or ten lanes in itself. So there's tons and tons of data in here. So I wanted to discuss this paper because it's really... Uh, Chalk full of information, and hey, well, Robin and, and Robin Dennis has joined us as well. Thanks for being here, Robin. Thank you. Today we are going to discuss Dr. Houghton's recent publication in PNAS. So it's actually by um, Changshin Chen and Dr. Houghton here at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Center for Childhood Cancer and Blood Diseases. So, Pete, um, this paper is very complex. For those who don't have it, there's a lot of acronyms and yet, it's been picked up by the by the media, and also, as you know, uh, you were on the radio, the local NPR station today, so talking about it. So, it's generated quite a lot of interest. Can you just tell us, to start with, why is it so interesting? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> 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 um,
3: it sort of deals with a very fundamental um, process of DNA damage recognition and repair. Um, this this work stems from an observation that Hakam Kam in the department made when he was in my lab uh, about four or five years ago that um, we accidentally stumbled on the observation that this protein ATM, which is a protein that's involved in transmitting a DNA damage signal to control a protein that regulates protein translation, survival, proliferation, called TOR, that ATM was very low in many pediatric solid tumor models. So um, when we heterograft tumors from patients into mice to form these xenografts or patient-derived xenografts, when we did a survey, we found that the, the levels were maybe 10 to 20-fold lower in solid tumors than they were in leukemias. And this sort of intrigued us because this molecule, ATM, is involved in transmitting stress signals to regulate the Tor1 complex or com- torque one that's involved in many, many cellular processes. Um, so with ATM being very low, then under stress, in this case hypoxic stress, uh, that we we're looking at you couldn't regulate tor and we wondered if this fact that tor was dysregulated and it's dysregulated in in many adult cancers as well but through different mechanisms whether this regulation of a uh, dysregulation of the tor pathway was responsible for the suppression of atm so this like a positive feedback loop and that appears to be the, the case and it, interestingly it seems to be Context-specific TOR regulates the levels of an oncogene called n and n regulates two microRNAs, microRNA 18a and 421, which prevent the ATM message from being tra- um, be translated. So,
1: so what? So, if we stop right there, uh, you summarize the whole paper, but I think we want to dissect that a little further, both for our scientific audience. Uh, to dig a little deeper with a technical discussion, but also for our lay audience to kind of understand it more. So, you've introduced all the main terms a- Tor, uh, microRNAs, um, ATM, and MIC. What, what prompted you in the first place to look at ATM uh, expression, this checkpoint?
3: Okay, it was one of those um, marvelous moments you can look back and say it was pure serendipity. Um, we were studying DNA damage response. And Tor regulation, and we had um, ATM mutated cells, and to map the pathway, we thought ATM was involved in signaling between DNA damage and and Tor suppression. And we just happened to have purchased a hypoxia chamber um, a few weeks before.
1: So that would be an incubator that grows cells in the low oxygen That's levels, correct. which would emulate tumors more than normoxia or normal right. oxygen yeah
3: and so for some obscure reason hakam just put these cells into hypoxic conditions low oxygen conditions and then he just ran the western blot of which you see many in the paper um and lo and behold in the atm cells they couldn't shut down tor signaling so uh-huh. and that's there was a that cell paper that came out of that because ATM had not been mapped in that pathway, and that's what made us look at ATM under those conditions. Um, So it was just um, an interesting experiment. He was really just testing (laughs) out the hypoxia chamber, and the the results were not (laughs) what we expected.
1: Those are the best kind, right, the unexpected. So for the lay audience, we're really talking about, you know, there's complex circuitry in any cell, but certainly in tumor cells it's the the, the electrical or, or... the circuitry that controls the ability of the cell to grow and divide and do the things that cancers do well is obviously dysregulated or, or abnormal. So, uh, what you're dissecting is all the, is several of the key key components. There's probably thousands of molecules involved in cellular circuitry, um, much more complex than the you know integrated circuits found in your iPhones. But uh, you know, so this is just a tiny piece of those, but it seems to be very important. Uh,
0: yeah, it does. Actually, I had a more general question before you go into a more detailed explanation of the paper. And it's actually about ATM itself. So I saw that it stands for ataxia, ataxia telangiectasia mutated. Um, and as we know, as oncologists, patients with ataxia telangiectasia actually have an increased risk of developing cancers later, especially if they're exposed to DNA damaging agents. So my question actually is, In those patients, is the ATM actually mutated in the sense that it's actually a mutated protein um, because there's some issue with this, um, I guess, the DNA code and then the mRNA doesn't get translated correctly? Or is it something, um, is it actually decreased in just the amount of protein that's being made in those patients? Or is it not completely even related to ataxial angiectasia (laughs) and they just (laughs) named it that (laughs) way? No.
3: Ataxial telangiectasia. Mutated is the gene that was um, sequenced and found to be causal for the disease ataxia telangiectasia, which is a neurodegenerative disease, and it, it has, obviously, a cancer-prone phenotype. Um, in those patients is the point mutation in, in the ATM gene, which leads to a protein that not non-functional. It's a kinase. It, it regulates, it puts phosphate groups on, substrates and other molecules that activate them and, and start signaling cascades. There's probably many, many um, uh, substrates of which we've we just uh, uh, identified another one that Al hakam has. So. Um, so the protein is made. It just doesn't
1: function. Okay. So in those patients, though, we know they're at mm-hmm. increases mainly for leukemias, yeah. right? Uh, but they develop n- normally uh Right. It's not a total, um, it's not lethal uh, to the cells. Okay. So it's just a matter of uh, reacting to cellular stress. Mm.
3: Right. So ATM is, is generally low, and then it's stabilized in the presence of stress. So you see it they come up. But there are other DNA repair or surveillance uh, pathways, such as ATR check uh, one, which are probably more important in the basal state in the cell
1: so the general idea here is cells get stressed all the time Mm -hmm. by whatever external factors we all get exposed to but uh, and the cell has its own ways of sort of halting things or saying wait let's not you know get too excited and let's repair and let's pause until that stress is gone or let's deal with it but in cancer cells they don't shut down they don't pause they just keep going
3: yeah, in many cases the, the, the checkpoints are abrogated. So in, in the pediatric cancers, the ATM check two um, checkpoint is, is, is less than functional because ATM is, is at very low levels. But they have an ATR, sorry, A- ATM check two, then, but they have an ATR check one checkpoint, okay. which is interestingly also controlled by the TOR pathway. Check one activation and stability. Uh, from recent work that we've done, uh, also seems to be regulated by um, Talk one
0: Does there seem to be um, some sort of threshold in terms of how much percent of ATM that you need or don't need or a levels of increase that corresponds to your pre- predisposition to getting the solid tumor? Really?
3: Well, I'm not, I'm not s- sure that we're, we're saying that ATM is causal in you getting a solid tumor. I think... Um, what we would predict would be there will be a higher mutation frequency, mm-hmm. um, but it's interesting because most pediatric cancers don't have a lot of mutations, mm-hmm. or at least they haven't been identified yet, at least in coding sequences. Got to remember, only two percent is the genome is coding sequences, um, mm-hmm. but certainly the response to stress will be attenuated. That's clear, and you know all the evidence suggests that if you keep TOR signaling on during the stress condition that probably is going to be harmful to the cell.
1: Lionel, feel free to
3: jump in
2: anytime. Yeah, so then, Peter, would you, uh, uh, I mean, as we get into this paper, we'll maybe uh, talk about this a little bit more. Do you think this is um, then a mechanism not so much, as you point out, um, involved in um, increasing the number of mutations that lead to cancer, but maybe more predictive of um, uh, how responsive these tumors are going to be to the stress of chemotherapy when we try to treat these patients?
3: Yeah, I think, I think um, that's exactly right. Um, ATM cells are hypersensitive to DNA damaging agents, such as ionizing radiation, uh, bifunctional alkylating agents. Um, so this may be part of the reason that, that these childhood cancers are so Responsive to some of these drugs and, and ionizing radiation. But it also suggests that you would have a, a higher level of genomic plasticity that might lead to resistance um, to these agents as well.
1: So are actually, so what you're saying, if the mechanism is different in adult cancers, is this one of the reasons we can actually have success in treating childhood cancer?
3: I think that's what we're trying to say. Yeah. Um, you do see suppression of ATM, but usually in very end-stage advanced um, adult carcinomas. Interestingly, this hasn't really been looked at in any detail in pediatric cancers. The the only paper that we could find that we referenced in here was about 50% of uh, pediatric solid tumors that were analyzed by immunohistochemistry Mm. to look for ATM. uh, It was undetectable. So mm-hmm. it, it probably does, you know, the models are one thing, but whether this is relevant to true human cancer in humans, uh, the suggestion uh, based on, you know, one, one paper is that
1: it um, probably is correct. Well, uh, What struck me about uh, your paper also is, that you know, it seemed to apply to a lot of the different models. So, you know, you have your, uh, I forget how many I counted, 53, I think, uh, lanes in, yeah. some of these Western plots. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it includes
0: a wide variety of tumors. Yeah, types. a lot of different Ratoid, kinds of cancers, right? Yeah. And so
1: there's finding, it, you know, a lot of times when you submit a paper and you it mm-hmm. a cell line, the reviewers say, well, did they show it in a second model to show that it's generalizable? You know, and you <laughs> showed it in 50 some <laughs> models. <laughs> so that's one of the striking things. It seems to be a common feature amongst a lot of these different cancers. Yeah, I, you
3: know, I was in a meeting in Canada a couple of years ago and I was trying to think what... There was some work presented on Wil- in Wilms' tumour, and I was trying to think of the connection between what we were at that time seeing in terms of ATM and why would it apply to Wilms' tumour? So we went back, and, and what came out of it was it in some Wilms' tumours, N is overexpressed, mm-hmm. which I was unaware of. So we came back, and if you look at the Wilms' tumour in that Western blot, several of them express N at pretty high levels. And MYCN... Um, uh, activates or it, it transcribes some of these microRNAs that are relevant to suppressing ATM. So that seemed to be the... I came away with a thought that maybe it was microRNA 421 that was involved from that meeting in uh, in in uh, Banff. Very nice place to be.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I actually forgot to, for the audience, read the title of your talk. Oh, sorry, the title of your paper, which summarizes the finding: the mTOR pathway negatively controls ATM by upregulating microRNAs. And you know, when you think of MICN, we think of neuroblastoma. I mean, it's classic, upregulated oncogene known in neuroblastoma that's used to stratify patients for their risk. High MICN patients have higher, you know, more problems, higher risk. Yet, almost every single model you tested of these fifty-some or whatnot, uh, except the ALL, the leukemia models almost all the solid tumors have upregulated NMIC, so it seems to be a common phenomenon, not yeah. just in neuroblastoma, but...
3: Yeah, no, it's, uh, but it's been reported in in, rhabda- in alveolar rhabdos before that NMICN levels were pretty high. We, you know, it could be these are, these are heterografts, so tumors that we grow in mice, so there could be some sort of selection to say, you know, we've enriched the, for tumors that, that have high NMICN, sure. and that's why they grow in mice, and that's one possibility, but... It certainly is not restricted to neuroblastoma.
1: Well, in fact, many of these seem to have higher expression than the ones you have in your neuroblastoma yep. models. Yep. So that's pretty striking. So the, uh, w- we don't need to dig through the figures necessarily, but what you show in this paper and that what you model in, in the supplemental figure S6 is really that NMIC is activating these microRNAs that are down-regulating ATM. ATM yep. right? mm-hmm. So it's part of the circuitry of control. So it really all starts at the activation of the NMIC oncogene that has these downstream effects. Right. Um,
0: mm-hmm. have you looked so I guess you use the xenographs and the cell lines in the morning. Have you seen like actual tumor regressions and stuff in in the mouse? Like models I didn't see any pictures and maybe they were included and maybe I missed them. But in terms of looking at immunofluorescence of the tumor sizes a different mouse models and actually showing a percent decrease of a tumor?
3: In terms of chemo response, mm-hmm. well, um, yes, they're, they're very sensitive to ionizing radiation and cyclophosphamide being two classic DNA mm-hmm. damaging agents. And um, cyclophosphamide obviously is an agent that's used um, commonly in sarcomas. Uh, the models are very responsive. And more recently, we've been doing external beam ionizing radiation, and you get some fantastic responses. But when they grow back, you know, if you radiate daily up to sort of 30 gray and the alveolar rhabdos completely regress and then come raging back, they're very metastatic. Right. Really. Again, consistent with additional mutations that have led to a, an increase in the malignant phenotype. And the, we would very much like to sequence some of these mm-hmm. and see see um, and what's going and on. And have
2: you tried, uh, uh, sorry, Pete, have you tried some of these uh, treatments in in concert with the mTOR inhibitor, because your work would suggest that uh, by inhibiting mTOR, you could get a, a, a synergistic effect, right?
3: Right. We um, have published some data with um, the r- with rapamycin and cyclophosphamide, and that was quite synergistic. And there's been a recent COG trial that uh, has looked at Temstronomus as a rapalog um, with Vinrobin and... Um, cyclophosphamide, and that
1: looks quite promising. And that's in relapsed rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma patients, right? right. Uh, you know, the figure S1 that looks at the ATM levels in, across these different models, you know, it's not absent in all of them. And in fact, some of them it's reasonably high, as high as the leukemia. So is there any correlation between those that retain expression of ATM and either their sensitivity to chemo, or what happened to the patients that these were derived from, Uh, or were these relapsed patients or do you know or are are you able to ascertain that? Mm -hmm. Um,
3: Probably we won't be able to ascertain uh, that information. Um, And I'm not, well, looking through this, uh, I don't think there's any strict correlation between sensitivity um, to something like cyclophosphamide. I'd have to go back and look
0: Mm.
1: and it may be that they've acquired other changes in the circuitry at that point i mean
3: almost certainly you know drug resistance is is almost always multifactorial whether it's drug uptake whether it's drug metabolism whether it's drug interacting with dna and the repair processes is, is much more complex than looking at a single single parameter but uh, the tumors that are relatively sensitive um, tend to have lower levels, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and again, it's, it's always so complex that there's usually not a one-to-one correlation. There's always exceptions to any yeah. any rule. Th- the, the fact that this pathway is so important in just regulating genome stability, uh, um, d- can you tie that? to why these are seen in early age groups
3: well I, I, th- I think um ATM is 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 a surveillance protein that's involved in repairing dna damage and you know maybe this is part of a a, a network of of proteins that um are dysfunctional in in tumors and you do see um you know gen- genomic rearrangements and such like um, at an uh, early stage. You know, the idea of this sort of sequential hits to, to give you colon cancer which take over 20 years um, <coughs> suggests that even the gen- genome in those early stages of cancer is relatively stable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously that can't be the case in a, a three-year-old that presents with a tumor because there's either been a hit in an oncogene and um, probably more than one um, that's occurred fairly early and you would predict that having one of the two major pathways of dna sur- damage surveillance and repair being abrogated would in would increase the rate at which that would happen
1: so that just to reiterate that for for the audience um if many and maybe this is way too simplistic but if many adult cancers take years to accumulate you have to accumulate you know a Certain number of mutations to acquire each of the functions that a cancer cell needs to have, so you need to mutate a gene that um, prevents the cell from dying. You need to mutate a gene that allows it to grow blood vessels. you need to mutate some other gene. but in this case you 're mutating a gene that that regulates the ability to acquire those other mutations mm-hmm. so that you can those other mutations can be acquired much quicker or younger mm-hmm. than having those separate genes mutated I over think, time.
3: I think the other thing, that just, just while we're on the subject, is that many of the solid tumors are um, driven by translocations. Now, translocation, by um, hmm. definition, has to involve a double-strand DNA break. and ATM would be required to recognize a double-strand DNA break. So it, it could be that because this pathway is suppressed, that these translocations occur more readily.
1: And in addition to that, a lot of the times the translocations involve transcription factors, so they're dysregulating many genes right. as opposed to just an acquired base pair mutation in a single gene. Absolutely. So that may uh, be another reason that, that that these events are seen in p- young-age cancers rather than, than yeah, older-age right. cancers. So really, this study is shedding light, and I think the press has sort of said you know it's a, a missing puzzle piece, uh, found, uh, shedding light on on s- some of the circuitry that's involved in in the cause of of pediatric cancers, and you know that's critical for us to not only to understand why it's happening. Although it wouldn't necessarily help a family say why did my child get this cancer, but um, does it shed light on how we should be treating these other than this the age old chemotherapy, you know, radiation. And um, I guess and and the mTOR inhibitors, which have already been in, in trials and, and FDA approved, does it does it lead us to any other novel combinations or novel targets?
3: Um, I, I think the the two papers we published this year and a third paper that's coming out well will be submitted very soon would suggest that the TOR pathway or torq one regulates several of the DNA damage response pathways. So this one deals with ATM check 2. Um, what we've shown is that when you inhibit the Tor complex 1, um, FANC D2 is suppressed very quickly in tumors. Which, And then the third paper suggests that Torque one signaling controls a component of the ATR check 1 pathway. And there's some there's positive and there are negatives. So I think that the in terms of thinking about how you combine TOR inhibitors with chemotherapeutic agents or yeah, let's say just chemotherapeutic agents, da- DNA damaging agents at this point. We don't know. Well, in the context of MYCN, then you can see why this potentially could be a synergistic interaction. Whereas in the mm. absence of MIC-N, um maybe it will be very different. So I think it's going to come down to being very context specific in terms of whether you have antagonism or synergy, and I think we're just starting to probe those pathways and to learn the rules, because I think that's going to be really critical, because, you know, if you've got mic <coughs> and you suppress MIC-N, um, you bring up ATM, and ATM functioning could lead to antagonism, to say something like ionizing radiation. On the other hand, you're dropping down FANC-D2, which would potentially sensitize a cell to a bifunctional cross-linking agent that binds DNA. So um, I think it's going to be very much dependent on the agent that we're using and the context of the cancer cell. Not easy.
1: So maybe cancer-specific, not just cancer-type specific, but Mm -hmm. individual-specific Yeah. So we may need to assess each person in some way about what their circuitry is. Right. And then the real question is going to be, is it differ from cell to cell within that same person so that this effect mm-hmm. may not get every single cell, and what are the escape mechanisms for that therapy? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: I think that's nihilistic attitude. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry.
2: <laughs> and, and, and sorry, I just wanted to clarify as well. So uh, I think what I was hearing from you was that um, Mick Ann – uh, may become, and, and this is something I guess re- you're going to be testing, may become an important biomarker for whether or not um, uh, mTOR inhibition will be uh, uh, synergistic or antagonistic to either chemotherapeutic agents uh, or to radiation therapy. Is that is that sort of a way to put it?
3: Yeah, I think that's, that, that's very succinctly sort of... S- Says what I fumbled over, yeah.
2: Okay. <laughs> and, um, and do you think this is really specific to N? Uh, w- w- are the other forms of MYC uh, perhaps uh, able to substitute for this function, maybe through different microRNAs, or has that not been shown yet?
3: I think uh, CMYC uh, has been shown to regulate some of the same r- r- microRNAs. So, um, yeah, I think CMYC and maybe the other MYC family members would, be, um, would have a similar role, but we, we haven't demonstrated that in, in ourselves.
0: And I know, so... Y- and, Dr. Cryp, you do a lot of cell tumor work, and I'm sort of more of a leukemia person. So, and then I guess um, uh, Lionel, Lionel does mostly neuro-oncology. Yes. So, yeah. I, I mean, as far as I know, as McCann, it's mostly, like you said, you know, looking at it in neuroblastoma and some other stuff. But do we even know about it in these other solid tumors, like in terms of how... Do they? I mean, I, I don't. I don't remember hearing people talk more about looking at it in ewing's or looking at it in glioblastoma. And no, I think the pendulum, and those yeah. that. so, it may be an area just to start out by looking at what is the, you know, expression of of it in these other tumors first, so to get an idea of since he's showing all of these. Results across the board for all these tumors. Yeah, and
1: so these are models, but what about in real patient yeah. samples? And that may be out in the literature. I just don't know. But if a listener knows, please email us, and we'll bring it to everyone's attention in a future episode. <laughs> um, what, um, the only
2: information I know about uh, MICN is that there are uh, a small number of glioblastomas that do have um, amplifications similar to the amplifications that are seen in neuroblastoma. Um, But this would be affecting, you know, in the range of uh, 5% of glioblastomas. Uh, In terms of protein expression, uh, I don't believe that has been looked at uh, rigorously across uh, large groups of tumors. So that definitely is something that needs to be looked at.
3: Certainly with the rhabdomyosarcomas, um, one doesn't see amplification necessarily of the mackin locus, but you you do see increased protein.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other question I had for you, Pete, is that uh, in, in your panel of tumors here, um, um, most of them, of course, are tumors of, uh, uh, of childhood and of young adulthood, um, with the one exception of glioblastoma, which is, uh, I, I, and i also append moment to a certain extent, but as you know, these two uh, brain tumors occur uh, um, at a fairly high rate in, well, compared to in, in kids at a fairly high rate in the adult population. Do you know if um, uh, what the ATM status is in uh, the adult patients that have, uh, or has that been looked at in adults that have glioblastoma? Is there a really different mechanism that's functioning here in the pediatric patients compared to the adults?
3: Um, I'm unaware of any literature um, in the adult uh, dependemomas, Um so I, I can't answer that, and we don't have any models from uh, the adult tumors. My, my, my feeling is that this, the whole pathway, the ATM pathway is, is, um, to regulate talk one signaling. Right. I mean, when you look at the stresses, everything shuts down talk one signaling. And in most adult cancers, that connection is missing. Hmm. So not necessarily through ATM suppression, but through activation of PI3 kinase, loss of P10, and such like which will do exactly the same thing in terms of maintaining an active um, torque one signaling pathway. And in most cases, you've got some aberration of P53, which is required for DNA damage to signal through ATM to shut down torque one So in most adult cancers, my feeling is that this this uh, link between ATM and suppression of torq one signaling is is gone.
2: Interesting.
1: I think we're pushing a little past a half an hour, so I think we probably need to wrap it up. But how about uh, let us tell us about how this uh, study was funded? Where did you get the money, um, and where you, where are you going to take this work from here?
3: Oh, well, this was funded through the National Ca- uh, Cancer Institute um, for an RO1 or uh, investigator-initiated grant that was in its 15th year, and the resubmission, competitive resubmission is uh, going in very soon. Um, good luck. And also <laughs> through the pediatric uh, preclinical testing program where we got all the, the tumor models from. So,
1: so it's government-funded. It's uh, m- taxpayers' money uh, at good work. Your taxpayer <laughs> money at work, right. Any last questions um, from our hosts? co-hosts?
0: Um. No, I was just also wondering the second part of your question as to what was the next step moving forward.
3: I think the next step is to try and define the pros and cons of inhibiting torque one signaling in the context of the drugs that we're using in the clinic. Now are there some rules that we can understand that if you have, you know, if you have um, inhibition of TOR in the context of mic Inhibition of TOR in the context of so the normal level of, of MYC gene expression. Is there a difference in how that tumor cell handles that stress? I think the all the data suggests that both with FANC-D2 and um, MYCN signaling is going through the S6 kinase pathway downstream of TOR, not through the 4EBP pathway. So looking at very selective and specific inhibitors of ribosomal S6 kinase may um, allow us to start to dissect this pathway and perhaps have some very uh, specific effects uh, that we can exploit uh, in contrast to TOR or TOR kinase inhibitors with, that are going to inhibit both tor one and tor 2 signaling. So I think there's a lot of things to explore. There's a lot of things we don't understand um, this is just the beginning of I think uh, quite a large uh, set of experiments. So clearly
1: your r01 needs mm-hmm. to be renewed, and mm-hmm. we also need more funding to come from other sources such as philanthropy and private foundations mm-hmm. to supplement that kind of funding. so um, thanks for being here today. Thanks for the uh, congratulations on the on the great paper. I hope to our audience uh, for our audience we may have helped uh, all of us comprehend it a little bit uh, more and if you have questions or comments about it don't hesitate to email us thanks Robin for being here
0: oh, no problem thanks
1: thanks Lionel for being here oh it was my pleasure um, and also thank you to Victor Aguilar who was our sound engineer today um, please send us an email at twipo at org. follow us on twitter at twipo podcast or sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the solving kids cancer website Also, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And thanks to Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.